I think to say that I'm a investor in data, ML, AI, deep learning, image processing, et cetera, like that's not a sector either. That's something that I think will be table stakes and will cut across many, many different sectors. Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real true wealth. To find out more about us and join our syndicate on AngelList, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. Hey guys, welcome back to The Syndicate, the show where we bring on the world's best investors, operators, tech people to talk tech. We talk startup investing, specifically early stage. And my goal, and don't tell anyone, especially not our guests, is to find the smartest people, steal their time, learn what I can, network with them, and build something incredible for you guys. So thanks for tuning into this one. And today we've got an incredible program planned. I got Pete Sutterling. Originally, I believe Shruti introduced us. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Shruti Gandhi. She was on a previous episode. She's quite an accomplished VC at this point with Array VC. Wanted to have Pete on the program because Pete's a data guy, both operator, turned investor, and a little bit of organizer at this point. So welcome to the program, Pete. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. So I always do a terrible job with the intro. So you take a shot. <laughs> introing me or introing you? Oh, not introing me. I'm not that exciting. <laughs> So my quick spiel, um, I'm an engineer, software engineer from the first internet bubble in the late 90s, turned entrepreneur in 2003, I'm mostly on the East Coast of the US, did my time in New York City and was part of the growing tech community there in the late 90s, 2000s and beyond. Started a few companies, mostly related to some form of software engineering, either software engineering communities or cloud software used by engineers or other sort of deeply technical stuff. And uh, now I currently run a data science conference called Data Eng Conf. It's a two-day conference. That's the intersection of data engineering and data science. And we run that in New York, San Francisco, and launching in Barcelona in 2018. So now I'm a bit of a data community builder, and I've always loved to get engineers together. So that's um, one of my latest efforts. Why Barcelona? You just love the city? Yeah, the city is great. I visited there for the first time in 2010. I've crisscrossed Europe for the last 20 years, so I've always just been in love with just about every city I've been in in Europe. Um, but Barcelona is amazing. It's 3 million people. It has a proper beach like next to the city center. And uh, while I was there this summer, sort of planning and scheming our data community there, it turned out Amazon announced that they're launching a 100-person machine learning R&D center to launch in Barcelona in 2018. So that was just a great kind of intersection. I happened to be in the right place at the right time. And now we're making Barcelona our county seat in Europe um, in terms of a conference destination. Speaking of conferences, I know we spoke prior to the show about this a bit, but there wasn't much in terms of data conferences initially. What's, what are you working on? What are you building? What is Hackalabs? Yeah, well, Hackalabs is a bit of a story. Um, we originally started off building a social network, essentially, for engineers online. Um, it didn't really look like a social network because you can't just say you're going to build a social network and do it. You have to, <laughs> there has to be some edge of the wedge where you're giving a small amount of people real material value. So we 
raised money from VPs of engineering at Twitter and Salesforce and others, which was a great sign that we were onto something um, in terms of connecting engineers. Originally, we, we thought we were going to monetize through recruiting, since engineers connecting other engineers to find the best jobs was something we see happen in the real world. Um, on the other hand, engineers hate LinkedIn because they get bombarded by other recruiters all the time. So we were trying to like find the engineer-on-engineer way of connecting um, them to find great opportunities. And like I said, this is a little bit of a long story. We built a few different MVPs, trying different ways to connect engineers together um, at a UX level. Ultimately, we, you know, we had tens of thousands of users, not hundreds of thousands of users. And so we didn't really reach escape velocity from a network standpoint to justify another round. So um, about two years ago, I shut down the product um, and the company kind of shifted. And it turned out that we actually had a good brand amongst data engineers and data scientists because from a marketing perspective around our product, we had built meetups and other community and content on YouTube. And so we'd gotten really good about doing content and community marketing to engineers to le- originally to leach them off on our platform. Um, when the platform went away, the community survived. And so I realized that we had the opportunity to um, turn a conference over the top of the community to make money since I was still passionate about keeping up with some version of the business and working with engineers at, at whatever scale I could. So the social online platform turned into a conference business, um, and that's what I'm doing now. And I'm actually using that as a platform um, for some other investing work as well, which we can talk about. That grassroots community movement is very valuable for a lot of types of startups initially. How did you guys get that going? You said you kind of had the flywheel. Yeah, so I guess it came from a couple of my previous startups and some of our challenges and failures. I'm a tech guy. I'm an engineer turned you know, product and business person. I never really felt like I was a great marketer um, or a great salesperson. And I think my middle company, which was an enterprise software company that we built in the cloud in 2008, I think that really suffered from sales and marketing challenges. So after that company, after I put that company to bed, I started to hang out with 500 startups, um, went on Geeks in a Plane, started to really appreciate you know, one of their core axioms, which is that many startups fail because of lack of marketing and distribution. And so I realized that when I started my next company, I wanted to start it with a view of the customer first and, and sort of marketing first, um, even if it was to teach myself and the team marketing. So when we started to build Hacker Labs, we actually started with an email newsletter geared at engineers and um, content, engineering content on YouTube, video content. We didn't even know what product we were going to build. We just started trying to get access to engineers at scale and to prove that we could engage them and then use that feedback to teach us what kind of product we could build to, to serve them better. So literally started the company from the outside in. And it probably shows because that community distribution, content, uh, marketing, flywheel, YouTube channel thing, that that's still alive and, and working well, you know, even after the product that we tried to fill the, the gaps with inside and went away. There's really two schools of thought here. One is start with the community, find the pain points, build the product. That's the much more entrepreneur driven focus. And then there's the more the Peter Thiel contrarian first principles. You need to blow everything up if you want to build something big. It just kind of you build the product and find the market. Where do you sit? Yeah, I don't think either is Right or wrong, I guess, in my personal experience, what I've discovered over, the, over time is that my values as an entrepreneur somehow mirror, if I'm honest, my values in life and the things that I care about 
in life are best suited to my entrepreneurial endeavors when I'm clear about those. So they're actually not necessarily two different things for me. Um, I'm passionate about software engineering and software engineers because I had challenges as a self-taught engineer myself. And so I carry a lot of that ethos into everything I want to do for software engineers. So that's a big theme and a meme for me. But I'm also a musician. And I realized that if I want to start another company, there's an extra level of passion that I would get automatically by trying to do something related to music. So of course, you can be an entrepreneur that just cherry picks an idea out of the sky, a big market, a great opportunity, a prototype that you launched that just went to the moon. Of course, you can do that. And I'm sure some people do. I've learned that for the long haul with me, entrepreneurship is too group. I haven't had a paycheck in um, 15 or more years. And the only way I've been able to survive is by continuing to link things that I actually care about with my entrepreneurial endeavors. And so for me, you know, building community, this is a long way to answer, but I guess building community and kind of investing in that community, whether it's engineers or musicians, that's something I do anyway and makes sense for me from a personal value standpoint. So I'd rather see business ideas come up out of that organically than me try and go shop around for new and brave ideas that might not stick or I might have not have the stick to it, stick to it to this with to make up word. So you like the scratch, scratch your own itch obsessive founders? I think so. And, you know, I mean, again, there's people on both sides, but, you know, that's kind of one of the mantras of YC, it seems, solve a problem that you have first. And it sounded kind of pedestrian to me early on in my entrepreneurial career, but I didn't realize like how much alignment that can create with your life, especially if you're going to be a founder, an entrepreneur, or involved in startups for the long haul. It's important to find that intersection. Yeah, especially it's, I mean, this is 100% of your life for quite a while. So yep. you, you had the two companies. Did you exit either of them? What was the, what was the situation like? You said the no. past 15 years. Yeah. So the first company was a software consulting company. It was my one step away from me, you know, having an engineering job at a corporation. I stepped away. I started to do engineering work for multiple companies at a mercenary level. So that was just a basic consulting company, you know, made good money, allowed me a lifestyle, allowed me to basically kick off what I call my self-guided MBA. I thought about you know going to, to B-School at the time, but instead I started a company and I had no idea that that would turn into three or four companies down the road. So yeah, I basically got my education by learning the, fi the finance and the sales and the ops and the marketing and the hiring side. Um, and I did that through this consulting company. Obviously, it didn't scale well. So I took some of the money that I'd made from, from that company, wound down the consulting company, and then built this product, this enterprise software product in the cloud. And then you know, from, from there, like went on to other things as well. Speaking of other things, how'd you get into angel investing? Yeah, well, I guess for me, um, you know, my first investments were time investments. And I realized, again, as one company stacked into the next, and I became the serial career founder, which I didn't know was going to happen originally, I started to find myself in conversations with other founders. And I've always tried to be helpful and, and, and pay it forward and, and backward in every which way because so many people have helped me. So I guess I got into conversations with founders over the years, and I felt like I had a lot to say to them. You know, if, if you were a founder in New York City in 2008 that had started, you know, two companies in the mid-2000s, like most people were starting their first company then. And so even that one extra company showed me how much insight, you know, you're able to develop. Plus, I was consulting and building stuff for founders in my first company. So I'd seen a lot of other stories as well. So Anyway, I guess I started 
just by being helpful to, to uh, other founders, especially engineering founders who needed help on the business side. And then one thing led to another, and soon those became full on advisory roles with, with uh, equity. Um, and then I realized I could take that same platform and launch an Angelist syndicate, which I have sort of a specific view on, um, and use that to scale. And I sort of backed into being an investor just by trying to be as helpful as possible to founders. Talk to me a little bit about the advisor arrangement. So I'm an advisor with other companies as well. But I'm curious how it works for you and then to explain to others that aren't familiar. Yeah, I think I've seen, I probably thought early on that there was what one way to do this. And what I realize now is that there's just so many different ways to do it. And both from, I guess, from a structure standpoint, to me, the structure isn't too complicated. You know, it seems like most founders who are savvy and who come from a market where there's sort of a developed understanding of these things, like it seems you know, typically you're looking between a quarter of a point and a point, um, depending on how helpful you are, what stage the company is at, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, you can negotiate different things and some founders need more help and on and on. But, you know, I think in markets outside of San Francisco and maybe some other developed places in the US, you know, you see investors who try to take half of the company for like a small check. And that's just a undeveloped market in my sense. So if you ever have an advisor who's sort of at that same, like looking for multiple percentage points of your company. Like, I mean, any, you're, you're the founder, like you can do whatever you want. But it seems to me that in most cases, in more the developed startup ecosystem, you know, the equity is much smaller. And then, you know, based on sort of the actual operational or, um, or, or duties, responsibilities that you have with the company, that just varies widely. So some companies want to talk every week. Some companies want to talk every month. Some companies call you when they need you. Some companies need more help early on and less help later, which is mostly the case. Um, some companies shift and they need to like find different advisors that have specialties in different things. So, you know, there's no like one size fits all. But again, for me, it just came from wanting to be helpful first and then later trying to find some business mechanism that made sense as I had to start to filter out how I spent my time across all these um, different options. We're using that. Fa- that makes sense. We're using FAST, Founder Advisor Standard Templates. No, never used that. Oh, interesting. So that's typically what I use with startup companies. It really simplifies things. How are you? How are you structuring that then? Just, uh, just equity, like separate agreements um, with the company. So yeah, I never had a standard template, and I also haven't done things at massive scale yet. So I'm sure as I start to scale up, I'll have more opinion on and and just be sort of more in the know on ways of standardizing this, but. You know, as with most of the things I've done, it's like a lot of ad hoc early on and try and learn from people who have done it more than you as you go along, like including this tip that you just gave me. That said, it sounds like you've done pretty well. So you start you start the Hacker Conference primarily as a business model shift to build network, build deal flow, and then build a business on top of it? Well, really, I started the conference just purely to um, save the company, try and give the investors another shot at, at an exit in the future. And because I was passionate about continuing to work with engineers, and I felt that platform was meaningful to me, um, even if like the the ephemeral online social network of massive scale connectivity of engineers wasn't possible, at least at that stage, I felt like I was still connecting engineers in real life through meetups and conferences that could be monetized. And so that was enough for me just to keep going. Some of the investment strategy um, that fell out came out later, just through separate realizations. So you start putting money in. What's your first check? How do you kind of 
dip your toe into the water, so to speak. I imagine it's not something that's traditionally comfortable. Yeah. So, you know, I wanted to both develop a reputation as an angel investor, and I also wanted to maximize the the potential network that I had. So most of my early investments were for small amounts of money inside companies that I already had advisory relationships with. So, you know, or or individual investments on AngelList that I made just to sort of start to prove my thesis out. So um, because I had this data science conference, I mean, I had this amazing community of talent. I started, and I believe sort of in the future of machine learning and AI and all this data related stuff, I realized that, you know, I wanted to build any kind of investment thesis as I started to venture out into angel investing on some similar overlap. Again, it's like the whole values conversation of doing what you care about. So I started to pick out some um, data-oriented investments on AngelList um, just to get my feet wet. And then that sort of emerged into finding more data-oriented companies that come in through my network, especially now that the conference is growing nicely. And so typically now today, my model is be an advisor to a company if I can get to know them better, if possible. And then I'm able to leverage small amounts of capital that I throw in by the AngelList syndicate, which is a small AngelList syndicate. We have a couple hundred thousand dollars of backers now, Um, but those people are all highly technical. And so there's a lot of value add that we can give to our portfolio companies because I've actually been in situations where we've been able to negotiate, you know, a small sliver of an A round that was oversubscribed because I can promise the founder that that small amount, that 100K, that allocation that we get, it's the most highly leveraged slice in terms of engineering network and talent um, talent opportunities because the backers of my syndicate are XVPs engineering and um, highly technical folks and data scientists from our community. So that's sort of the pitch that I use and that's how I get leverage on you know my little bits of capital, which just basically fuel the rest of the Angela syndicate um, that I'm building to come in. Talk to me about data, data sets, machine learning, and what you're looking for in startups, specifically how they're leveraging data, how they're building moats, and kind of break that down because data's kind of a buzzword and you can do it right and you can do it wrong. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess there's different ways to look at it. And forgive forgive me if this is a little bit rambly, but of course any social any successful social consumer based app especially social social networks throw off amazing amounts of data. You know, it's a little bit hard to bet on those early on. I'm actually not a consumer guy. I'm more of a B2B guy. So it's, you know, no argument that Facebook and Google have probably more data than anyone else. That being said, I guess I'm looking at um, typically more, more B2B businesses that are working in some niche sector, like, say, healthcare, where there's lots of data buried behind the firewall in Oracle databases and disparate data sets and PDF documents and images and all that thing. So, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more interested in those kind of sectors um, since I'm not natively a consumer guy. And also, I think the ship has sailed on a lot of consumer social stuff, which is probably the biggest data thing that, that we currently have. So I'm a little bit more interested in enterprise data sets and, you know, watching those emerge and come online in interesting ways. Then the other the other thing, you know, like I think to say that I'm a investor in data, ML, AI, deep learning, image processing, et cetera, like that's not a sector either. That's something that I think will be table stakes and will cut across many, many different sectors, obviously. So I'm in the process of still working out my investment thesis on top of that. So, you know, is it data for a particular sector? 
or is it certain impl implementations from a technology standpoint? Is there certain deep tech that I'm sort of waiting to come out of the, the neural network world? Or I'm still formulating, I think, a deeper thesis. But right now, suffice it to say, I'm interested in all things data, if that's a place to start the conversation. That makes sense. I think a, th a thesis could be even just products that were building defensible moats via data and analysis. So Absolutely. a lot of people are going to have the data, but it really comes down to acquiring changing slash altering how you need it to and f finding the insights. But um, talk um, a little bit more about the, the consumer side. So is, is the ship sailed? Is it all over? Is it Facebook and Google and anyone else is just out to die? I mean, it's hard. It's hard not to feel that way. I don't know that we'll see another big social network that rivals any of the... I mean, you can ask far smarter people like Josh Elman about that than I, because I'm truly not a consumer guy, but I'm long Facebook and I'm long Facebook, you know, my personal portfolio, because I think Snapchat is actually not going to win the day. I don't think they're really going to compete. If they ever start to compete at a real, at a scale level for, you know, TV advertising like dollars and video monetization, that'll be interesting. But I'm waiting for Ben Thompson to tell me that that's, that's, that's happened before I sell my Facebook stock. Did you listen to his podcast, Run, Run, the Gingerbread Man? The, I don't think I heard that one yet. So the, the biggest problem with Snapchat is there is no defensible moat. Their defensible moat is Evan Spiegel and him yep. coming up with new ideas and them running, running as fast as they can and not being caught by Facebook, the, the evil monster that's going to eat the cookies. But um, I completely agree. It's very complicated. Now, I would add Amazon to your list. I would be oh, longer on Amazon than anyone else. The, those are the two my two main positions um, in my stock portfolio are Amazon and Facebook. Google, I'm a little worried about. So voice is going to change a lot of search. They're kind of shooting themselves in the head or at least the foot. So <laughs> we'll have to see. We'll have to see how that goes. So where do you see when you're analyzing entrepreneurs, specifically when you're dealing with engineers, they're not always great at pitching. They're not always great at the entrepreneurial stuff. How do you evaluate founders that you decide to work with, invest in? I understand if you're being an advisor first and then investing, but have you done any direct investments? Yeah, so it is easier to work with, as an advisor first with the company because you get a lot of insight. And I, I personally believe I can materially affect the outcome of the company um, at an early stage. Now, that being said, it doesn't scale from an investing standpoint. So I'm changing, changing and morphing a bit there. But still, on the investment standpoint, I still believe if I come in early, on enough, early enough with this talent network of data scientists and data engineers that I have, I also believe I can materially affect the outcome of the company. So I'm still looking for unfair advantage from what I can bring to the table. I guess, you know, to, to answer your actual question, you know, my favorite question on the Y Combinator intake sheet, the, the interview application is, tell me about one thing in your life that was not a computer system that you hacked. And I think there's this amazing quality of amazing founders where they just solve problems in novel and sometimes illicit ways, to be completely honest, technically speaking. <laughs> but whatever, whatever that unction is, whatever that, that ethos is, you know, I've seen that in myself over time. And I'm trying, because I'm an early stage investor, and I can't always be an advisor first, 
I'm starting to develop a clearer signal of how I will make these decisions to invest in founders that are pre-product or pre-signal. I mean, I think this is an important thing. And it's most investors operate off signal templates that they feel will work for them. I think for someone to really have a sixth sense, um, I think it takes different triangulation and, you know, really understanding the fire in a founder's eyes and why and where that came from and what the big hurdles are that they've overcome in their life, in their personal life, I think is as good of a beat on that as I've been able to figure out yet. I would say that's a dangerous devil's advocate question because you're also <laughs> going to you're also going to get the con men there. So, yeah, I, I, I hustled that little old grandma out of her walker. I got her for that Internet scam. But um, I completely I completely agree. There is that that fire that I don't give a shit what happens. I'm going to figure out a way to make it happen. And then just just grinding at the same time. Most founders, specifically the ones you don't hear about, which is why you don't hear about them, don't have that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it gets back to the like, why? Why now? Like, why, why is this product right for the market now? What's changed in the market or what's changed in tech or what seam has opened up? Like, how have the heavens opened up to make a, a new opportunity for this product now that didn't exist before? You know, that's, that's the market fit, product fit question. And then the founder market fit question is, why you? Like, why are you the one to do this? And again, there's many different answers to that question that can, you know, be sort of emotionally connecting to, to an, an investor. but. I think those are the two most important questions overall. I just wanted to take a quick time out to tell you that the Syndicate Podcast comes to you from yours truly, Matt Ward, has no ads and is designed to help angel investors and tech startups succeed. We don't monetize. I do this 100% out of the goodness of my heart and the beautiful networking opportunities to get to chit chat with some of the smartest, best angels and VCs around the globe and to help you guys. If you appreciate this, tell an angel or VC about us, refer us to a startup, or even leave a review. If you go to the syndicate.vc slash iTunes, I know it's clunky, it's terrible, but if you leave a review in there, it really helps us with reaching more angel investors and making the program as awesome as possible. If you want to learn a little bit more about us, get some more inside information, get access to our 20-step investor checklist, and get invites into all of our roundtables, including cryptocurrency, artificial intelligence, consumer tech with Tim O'Reilly, and more, go to the syndicate.vc. If you go there, subscribe, get on our email list, You'll get all of our best content delivered to you completely for free, right to your email address. If you like this podcast and want more like it, thesyndicate.vc. Now, let's get on with our podcast. I want to jump back to something you said earlier about the advising not really being scalable. Devil's advocate, if you were full-time, couldn't you advise 10, 20, 30 startups relatively easy and do a poor man's angel investing? Yeah, I think so. I think that model requires at least right now, I haven't raised a fund. I guess, you know, it, once, you, once you raise a fund, you kind of call that advisory work board seats. I'm pre-fund, you know, I don't have the two part of the 20. So to pay my own expenses, it's still me operating conferences and, you know, doing other stuff that I, that I care about. So, you know, it's, it's a little, little different. I guess AngelList doesn't really, you know, allow folks to do carry on the platform, which I think is great and incense everyone in the right direction. But yeah, I mean, it can scale bigger than I've scaled it. It's just, I guess, a question of sort of ultimate trajectory and, and you know, where one is going and um, how many advisory roles you want versus how many investing roles you want versus how many board seats you want. And pretty much, you know, it seems to me like in VC, um, as you climb that ladder, 
the the bottleneck is always your time and you know there's funds that can't take on many more investments because they don't know who to who to put on board so that's one of their axioms and that's tough to see happen so a question about the conference that you're building up do you have challenges typically speaking engineers are introverted i imagine machine learning once and ai once would be even more so do you have challenges putting on conferences with super inverted or super introverted people yeah i mean but that's that's just the you know part and parcel you know i guess maybe that's what i've always enjoyed about what i felt like was my emerging role as being a some kind of community leader wrangler engineer whisperer whatever you call it like i'm the social geek and a lot of other engineers that i represent and build community for they're not the social geeks and so you know some of them i can coach and i can help and i can help them prepare conference talks and you know, like put them on that path if they want to be. And so I give them a platform to do that. But then 95% of them that come and listen, they sit quietly in their seats and are happy to have a beer with each other later and talk to a few people. So that's just the nature of the beast. And I'm not really trying to change that. But there are engineering engineers that are more outspoken and ones that are less and our communities for all those people. And I'm really, really lucky to be fortunate to, to pull them all together in the, at the scale that we have so far. I would say two of the really strong developer community specifically, Hacker News and Reddit. Have you ever thought about building some type of membership or possibly forum around the event? Because that could be your nice recurring revenue that supports your lifestyle to actually focus on the things you want to focus on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this this I looked at more four years ago when we were building product to connect engineers together online. So, you know, whatever the, the gaps or the seams were between Stack Overflow, Hacker News, Reddit, etc., um, we were trying to focus on one of our early projects was called Engineer Matching. And we had this automated email that would go out to all the users at the end of every day. It would say, what did you what did you do today? And the engineer would respond, you know, I patched this bug in Rails, or I'm struggling with this linear regression, or I'm trying to learn Node, or whatever it was. And so we take these little tweet-length log messages, we call them logs. We take them back into our Elasticsearch cluster. We'd At the end of every week, we'd crunch the data and match engineers who were logging about the same things with each other. And then we'd proactively do an email intro between the two of them. So this was our attempt to kind of gently push engineers to be a little more social, a little more connected through stuff that they were currently working on that week. I still think it's a genius idea. I think it has a lot of potential. You know, we just weren't the right in the right situation to do it for various reasons. But that was a way that we kind of tried to gently, proactively, forcibly connect engineers together. And some engineers loved it because it they do want to be social. They just don't go out and seek it. But if you give them a, a technical reason why they should connect with someone else, of course, they love to talk tech. So um, there was definitely something there. Interesting. I feel like a forum could be very interesting in the future, but I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah. So to, to go back and maybe answer more your specific question, I mean, those are all very large communities, Stack, um, Hacker News, and Reddit. And to unseat those it takes a lot of force. It takes, in my mind, much more than you know, like opening yet another discussion forum on a smaller site because engineers already have freeform discussion on Hacker News. They have messy um, racist discussion on Reddit or whatever they have. Um, it's more than that. I'm, I'm being snide. But obviously, we know about the challenge with the Reddit community. But this is actually a reason why I invested in a company called Stackshare. And it was my first syndicate deal. So it's, it's relevant. But Stackshare was picking up, I felt like Stackshare was picking up where I left off building the social community for engineers. And they had done it in a way that got a little more traction than we did. 
um, they're helping engineers find and discover APIs and engineering tools. And if you think of what a Yelp might look like for engineering tools, this is the vision of Stackshare. So an engineer comes in, Stackshare says, what's your stack? And the engineer picks the building blocks out of a library. We're using Heroku, we're using Redis, we're using Postgres, we're using Athena on AWS. And they create their stack. And then Stackshare has all kinds of interesting organized data. We call it the stack graph. So to organize discussion, um, reviews, recruiting, um, lead gen for another, other tools, product comparisons across tools, all of a sudden Stackshare has the underlying graph that would make Stack Overflow and would make Hacker News a better place. Because the problem with Stack Overflow and, and uh, Hacker News is it's very, very freeform. I mean, it is so Web 1.0. I can't imagine what a more Web 1.0 community would look like than Stack Overflow and Hacker News. But they're lodged in the ecosystem. Stack, Stack Overflow is logged, lodged in Google SEO, may it live forever. Um, so it's very hard to like disrupt either of those communities. So we're starting to see, I think Stackshare has the capacity to do that. And it's because we have an underlying data graph about what those engineers care about and the tools that they're using. We can start to layer on some of these discussion and forum and connecting and recruiting and other services that would be far more powerful inside a Hacker News or Stack, Stack Exchange ecosystem if they had it, but they don't. So this is actually my hope to, to disrupt those industries from a, a software engineering um, social standpoint. That's very interesting. I feel like sorry with a, for, sorry for the rant there, but oh no, it's it's always good, especially when it's technical. I feel like a lot of the developer and technical communities they're much more they're much more ghetto. It's like an IRC. You just want mm-hmm. you just want the hack together communication. That's good enough. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, the UI is not a not a huge deal, but uh, I want to jump to the lightning round. How's that sound, Pete? Sure. So, what's the first deal you did? Well, I guess since I was initially brokering time, not money. The first deal where I, where I really felt, you know, I had an official sort of advised relationship with the company it was a company called Zendi, Zendi Beauty at the time. It's called Zendi Health now. And it's a cash-based medical services um, marketplace online. Think of it like Priceline um, shopping for medical services, dental or cosmetic or imaging, x-ray, etc. Um, so that's one of the first companies I started to help with a significant chunk of time. How's it going? I feel like they must be getting some traction with the complications now. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, health is an interest. This kind of got me into the healthcare market. Consumer healthcare online is very challenging. It's hard to do user acquisition because people don't shop for stuff for healthcare on Google. Like they're looking for advice and recommendations on Google, but they don't search for health products and doctors and things on Google because they expect their insurance to kind of be the initial go to there. So um, the company is actually working to partner through those insurance networks to get to do user acquisition because it's impossible to do it otherwise. So it's been an interesting road, but I have a lot of hope for them. They have a smart team and um, I think they're, they're on the way to doing something really interesting. That's really cool. What are you excited about today? I think I'm excited about the fact that more founders are becoming open to therapy, coaching. They see that, you know, it's not their life and their entrepreneurial life they're both the same because they're inextricably linked. And I think the more that founders open themselves, you know, we call it mental health or introspection or Buddhism or, you know, whatever term you want to use. Just the fact that founders are getting more introspective about alignment of their values inside this crazy thing we call entrepreneurship. I think that's a really healthy thing. And I, I think more, more founders, um, you know, need to go there. So I'm happy that that's being less stigmatized. 
Absolutely. It's a complete roller coaster. I'm going to try not to swear on this one, but it's the, the, <laughs> the ups and downs are freaking ridiculous. You've got to be able to handle it and you need help sometimes. What, um, yeah. flip side, what are you scared, worried, terrified about today? Um, I don't think I'm terrified about the, you know, universal multi-purpose AI in the sky. Although I'm watching, watching for it, of course, I think we have uh, opportunities to undo that if we see it coming to some extent. Some might call me naive. Um, what am I terrified about? I don't know. I mean, I'd say I'm terrified about, you know, Silicon Valley lo- losing its death grip on the funding and entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneurial ecosystem. But I don't think that's a bad thing either. I'd love to see the stuff sprayed across the four corners of the globe. And, you know, that's why I originally got involved in 500 startups because I had a very international vision. So. Yeah, I guess that's not a real answer, but I'll have to think about it a little bit more. I definitely think it will. It's just becoming so unattractive with certain things in the U.S., healthcare, immigration, regulation, that a lot of burgeoning industries will may choose to go elsewhere. London, Berlin, mm. great hubs. What's um? Mm. Go ahead. You're going to say something? Oh, I was just going to say, I think we just have to honor that type of globalization. Yeah, but that's a completely different topic, so maybe we should move on. <laughs> Sounds good. What's uh, anti-portfolio? What's the ones that hurt? <laughs> I don't think I've been doing this long enough to have a good anti-portfolio, but hopefully soon. <laughs> very good. Very good. What, uh, what field's going to dominate the next 10 years in exits and IPOs? Well, like I said before, it's going to be data-oriented stuff, whatever form that takes. I don't think that's an industry, but I, I think that anyone worth their salt in investing is watching this ML AI data world because we're seeing rapid, rapid, rapid changes there. And it's possible that it will unlock some of these industries that are next probably on the dominoes for other reasons that have been difficult, like education or healthcare or others, government where there's been like massive bureaucracy. So it might be interesting to watch the intersection of data and those industries start to combine in some really interesting ways. So I'm excited to see that. You just named two industries and one overarching player, and that player is what, <laughs> what messed up both of those industries. More regulation has just made it so much more expensive in those fields, whereas everything else is getting cheaper. But I don't need to rant or rave. So what sources, audio, podcast, blog, etc., are you reading and looking to on a daily, weekly basis? I mean, I already mentioned Ben Thompson. You know, he's, he's such a great thinker. Subscribing to his newsletter was the best thing I ever did two years ago. Um, I read it every morning. It's the first thing in my inbox that I look at. I just get smarter, you know, about the world, about the tech world. And uh, so I appreciate that. And then, you know, I'm trying to be a better investor. So, you know, podcasts like yours, the 20 Minute VC or others have been super helpful just to be able to spend time sort of, you know, under the tutelage, even if it's just one way um, of some of these great thinkers is super amazing. And as I mentioned to you before, you know, all this stuff is online now. So whether or not you live in San Francisco or not, um, like you and I don't at the moment, um, we have access to such amazing thinkers. And so I just love seeing this stuff out there. When he says amazing thinkers, he's not thinking of me. He's talking of the awesome guests we have. <laughs> What's overhyped today besides ICOs? Oh, God. I mean, Bitcoin is a value store. <laughs> is that the same thing? <laughs> it, it, it's it's similar right? as a gambling mechanism. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, I, the, inherently, blockchain is incredibly valuable. I'm very long on blockchain. And I'm very small on blockchain in the short term because it's all going to pop. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know where I was reading, you know, again, one of these great thinkers greater than I or us. Um, 
you know, talking about the bubble in 2000, right? So we had this massive internet bubble um, that burst and people lost billions and on and on. And we were left with amazing infrastructure that we've been building on for 15 plus years. So both things happened. So bubble, bubbles like produce amazing investments in infrastructure and, and structural elements of an ecosystem. And so regardless of what happens with the price of Bitcoin, I'm excited to watch blockchain, you know, here to stay. And I hope that the froth and, you know, the party and all the fun, I hope, first of all, I hope people can get liquid in their Bitcoin because I think a lot of people can't. And that's probably what's keeping the price, price up. But I, I, regardless of what happens with the price, I think that ecosystem is just at its nascent stages and whatever we can do to like funnel interest from entrepreneurs and investment time and infrastructure and failed startups and all the stuff that's required to make a great industry. I think we're just at the early stages there. And so I'm like, tremendously excited to see how that plays out. Especially because that's one of the few things that can unseat our data kings. I want to mm. uh, I want to thank you for coming today, Peter. Thanks for taking the time to chat. Where is the best place for people? Peter or Pete? Uh, most people call me Pete. My mom calls me Peter. Oh, I just committed a cardinal sin. I really don't want you to think about me like your mom. Where is the best place for people to check you out and say hey? Uh, my syndicate on AngelList is Pete Soder, P-E-T-E-S-O-D-E-R. Um, so if there's any engineering folks that want to get involved in angel investing, I'm always happy to kind of shepherd and help them along. Or you can reach me at Pete at Hackalabs.co. And Hackalabs.co is the best place to check out the conferences? Yeah, the conference is DataEngConf.com. DataEngConf.com. Guys, we'll have links to everything in the show notes. The syndicate.vc. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for taking the time. If you've enjoyed this, reach out to Pete. Tell him he's awesome. Hit us up, the syndicate.vc slash iTunes. You know, if you leave a review, I've heard something and it may just be a rumor, but I think Elon Musk will autopilot a new roadster to your house. Leave a review. It's a one in a thousand chance, but that's still pretty good. <laughs> Thanks for coming on today, Pete. Thanks, Matt. This was fun. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers, guys. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business, because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.